This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with Bob Fawkes of Brockman's Gin. Now, Brockman's is a British gin that is expanding in the U.S. and globally. And while I wish I could have met him in London for this interview, I am lucky enough to get to speak with him here in New York City. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. That's a pleasure. It's great to meet with you, Zach. It's all mine. So, Bob, tell me about Brockman's. What are you developing with this brand? We're developing a completely new style of gin. That was what we wanted to do. That was our kind of aim when we started. Our biggest objective was to create a gin that people would be very happy just consuming neat over ice. And that was kind of our mission. I know people do that. They drink gin in a martini, but it was kind of not many people think of gin in that way, in the same way as scotch or vodka in some ways. Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to try it, and I must say you, <laughs> it really is a nice sipping gin, which I can't say about a whole lot of gins. <laughs> you really can just enjoy it over ice. So why did you want to start a new alcohol brand? Are you a fourth-generation distiller and it was just in the blood, or where did this desire come from? As a young man, I worked in the Beef Eater Distillery, and I absolutely fell in love with the botanical store where all the beautiful botanicals were kept, and I enjoyed the smells, and I enjoyed this whole concept that they came from many different parts of the world. And I worked for big drinks companies in between in my career. I worked for Diageo, I worked for Allied de Mac, and I worked on gin as a consultant and as a marketing guy. But when somebody said to me about what would be about seven years ago, let's do a gin, all those memories came flooding back. And I thought, we get to play in that (laughs) wonderful botanical store. And I think that's the key for gin. It is that recipe so I was very excited, and uh, it came from somebody I knew um, who just said, let's do a gin. And I was a brand consultant, putting, I'd done a lot of innovation work in drinks. And I thought, wow, yeah, just get on with it. Let's make a brand. I know enough about this kind of industry yeah. to do it. Well, so you say you know enough about to do it. You've consulted for a lot of companies. You worked for some very large ones. What was it like to actually be the person who has to start the brand yourself, though? What was it like You know, just finding a facility to make gin? <laughs> I'm sure that was something you didn't normally do when working for beef eaters. They have their own distillery already. I was very fortunate. I mean, I think a lot of the story of developing something new entrepreneurial ventures, as it were, is luck. And I was very fortunate. I was actually consulting with an independent distiller. And whilst we didn't lean on them to help us invest in it or be part of the ownership, I knew how they worked and I knew the right people to talk to. So that gave us a head start in many respects. And did it also kind of help you find just the right team to help develop your base spirit and all that kind of stuff too? Kind of the groundwork you were able to rely upon? That was quite different because we wanted to be quite challenging. So the objective was to really not only create something that tasted great over ice, was actually to move away from the accepted norm for gin, to be quite challenging. So we didn't want to create a London dry gin, which probably seven years ago was the majority of people's representation of what gin is. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, no, actually, the possibilities with the gin recipe can move much further beyond that. So where could we take this? So actually, distillers were useful always wanted to go back to what they knew. Mm -hmm. So lots of juniper, lots of coriander, Mm -hmm. 
So pushing the margin wasn't part of their game. I think it's true generally in the spirits industry. You think of whiskey distillers. They are blending whiskies pretty much historically to taste like other blended whiskies. Mm -hmm. Consistency in taste was their objectives. So we had to bring in different people, flavorists and chefs, oh, okay. and people who would challenge where we could take the, the flavor delivery of our product proposition for Brockman's. Yeah, well, I think that's one of the amazing things that you've accomplished with Brockman's is definitely a gin, but when you drink it, it has a nice sweetness. It really has a nice berry note to yeah. it. What was that taste-making process? Did you know when you started off that you wanted to make it a kind of a berry gin? Because it does have blueberries in it, doesn't it? Or how did you kind of develop that flavor profile? Yeah, we had blueberries and blackberries. We had a number of flavor directions we were looking at. And when we started to decide where that should go was when we brought in the brand. Oh, so okay. I say, what is the brand all about as well? So we developed both product and brand simultaneously. And I think that's quite critical, really. I mean, well, that's my philosophy. That has been my philosophy and in the innovation I've done for big corporations. Mm -hmm. You know, consumers at the end of the day are buying a brand. So you have to make sure that that brand personality appeals. And you have to make sure that that product is a great product, a mm -hmm. great liquid, but also supports that brand personality. So as we started to develop the brand personality for Brockman's, that influenced where we took the flavors and what you know botanicals and what taste profiles we used in the final recipe. So that's interesting. I'd like to get into that a little bit deeper because when we've interviewed consultants in the past, people who probably did what you used to do with brands, one of the questions that I like to ask is, when's the right time for someone to call you? <laughs> you know, is it when they are just thinking, I want to make a gin? Or is it when they have 10,000 gallons of gin that they haven't been able to sell yet and think, okay, I think I have a marketing problem here. So you brought all that experience with you as you were starting it up. You knew from the very beginning that I wanted to make a gin even before I even knew necessarily what it tasted like, that you knew exactly which market you wanted to go after, and then you developed the product to go after that market. So Yeah, that's yeah, pretty that's, much um, it. I guess you're lucky in that you had the experience of ad of advising brands in the past to know to bring all that foresight with you before you even got your brand, before you even got your liquor distilled and the contents of the bottle prepared. Absolutely. I mean, I, that would be my philosophy about innovation in any consumer good area. Really think about what kind of brand are you developing before you get too lost in the product. I see too many people in this industry developing products and then treating it as oh, now we need some branding. Now we need a brand name, and <laughs> yeah. now we need to put some kind of picture on the label. Well, sometimes if you do it that way around, you're too late because you've created a product that can't fit the personality you're trying to create with the, the look or the styling of the packaging. So we developed both simultaneously. I think we were fortunate, and again, this luck thing, I think, is, a, <laughs> is a, an important part of all of this. We conducted focus groups. Oh, you did? At the beginning, we didn't have much money. It was us putting our shillings in <laughs> to the pot. But we did two different sets of focus groups. So basically, big corporations would probably do, and I did myself, <laughs> 30 focus groups oh. on a brand positioning question. We did two. Okay. <laughs> That's um, two more than a lot of new brands do. And we, we recruited people. It was in London. We recruited people who cruised the happy hour scene in upmarket hotels. And that was a benefit of hindsight, I think, or maybe an excellent recruiter. But they were very shrewd about every single brand because they were buying upmarket, they were buying top-end vodkas, they were buying, at that time, what 
top engines or tequilas were around. And they were extremely knowledgeable about brands. And they're quite young. So, you know, they were the future sort of thing. Yeah. So not people who are locked into a way of thinking about gin has to be London dry, super junipery, people who would be open to trying a new style of gin. Absolutely. And very experimental. So in terms of mixology as well as product categories. So they were just great to talk to. It gave us very interesting insights about the category and what could work within gin and what didn't work for them with gin. One thing I hear from people is when you go out and solicit a whole bunch of opinions on developing a new product, there's always a concern that it's too many chefs in the kitchen. How did you know which opinion, which guiding voice to listen to? Because you brought in chefs, people who have a lot of ideas on how flavors interact with one another. You brought in a lot of consumers who had a certain perspective on what it was like to enjoy a spirit and push a category forward. What was kind of your guiding light, though, through all of that to make sure you were getting solid information that would lead to the launch of your brand and not just a lot of background noise? I had experience of putting, to me, it's called putting a business mix together. That's brand and product and the story behind it. The research guy I worked with was very good at that. I'd worked with him for many years. So you absolutely, as you're implying in your question, have to filter out a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. So you do not take the literal answers that consumer respondents give you. In discussions, you interpret as best you can where their motivations are coming from and what they're saying. What is this mix, this brand mix, I call it, that we want to put together of product proposition meets brand idea? And once you've got that fixed in your head and you know that that's an opportunity, then you use that as your guiding light. But your question's absolutely right. A lot of people advise you at the beginning, mixologists, chefs, spirit industry experts, people from official positions within spirit organization. And you you have to filter some of that noise as well, otherwise you're not going to do something truly different, which Mm -hmm. is what we set out to achieve. Did you have that experience then when you kind of got all this information together and it was time to start developing the flavor? Did you get to go back into the spice room? (laughs) Did you get all those spices together that you remember from your very first job at the theater? And you get to put it all together? Yeah, Yeah. it was a real, like a child revisiting the train set. It was just fantastic, you know, (laughs) and it was hugely enjoyable. And even the difficult stage, the difficult stage is, you know, the finalization. Once you've got your route, your direction is actually the final details. It was the tough and tense bit in two aspects. One, this is it, guys. This is the final recipe. (laughs) And two is scaling up. So a lot of this stuff you're doing on smaller scale stills, Mm -hmm. then you've got to say, well, okay, let's take that to production scale, a larger still reality, which can be quite different. So that You can't just make something on a one liter still and then say, okay, multiply it by 10,000. We got it. (laughs) Absolutely not. So that was much time as anything. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) You work so hard to perfect the small-scale flavors, and then you kind of have to do it again (laughs) when you move up to the large productions. I know, I've seen, you know, I was head of innovation in corporations, and I've seen that go wrong, you know, many times. Oh, man. Oh, I can only imagine what that's Having that experience myself was useful in that, that important stage, yeah. So what was your biggest hurdle then in getting started? Was it a financial? Was it regulatory? As you're getting ready to ramp up and launch to market, what was your biggest hurdle Yeah, we raise funds relatively easily, actually. So to launch, we raise, you know, we all 
pitched in from money in our own pockets for seed capital to register the brand and do the research I talked about earlier and pay people to help us with product. I guess none of that was free. <laughs> no, no, that was all us, you know, digging into our pockets. And then we raised funds when we had a concept and ready to launch. And at the time, actually, looking back, we've done further fundraisers since then. They were harder, actually, when it was just a concept on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. It was just financial circumstances at the time, you know, economic factors. But it was actually, it was easier then to raise funds for a, from friends. It was friends and wealthy connections. Just who wanted to see a gin that they'd invested in sitting on a bar. That's a pretty cool thing to be able to bring to an investor, right? It's not a piece of software that they, it's complicated and you can't hold in your hands. When someone invests in your gin, here's your bottle. Like You helped build this. I loved it. It was, you know, it was terrific. And the fundraiser has been the same. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, this is real thing. This is manufacturing. Much of spirits manufacturing still remains traditional. So it hasn't really changed. Regulatory issues are always a challenge. But I guess you knew the paperwork that was on (laughs) about to come into your life and all that because you've done, you had done all that before. None of that probably surprised you greatly. Some of it did. In the UK, you had to have a warehouse certificate a warehouse keeper's certificate to manage stock under bond. And that was a lot tougher to get than I thought it would be. So there were things that I'd never, ever come across, you know, as a a guy who worked in a big corporation or as a consultant on marketing. Some of those things were surprisingly difficult and time-consuming. I think they delayed our launch initially by two or three months. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah, you know who to call for home insurance. You know who to call for auto insurance. But... Who do I call for my liquor warehouse bond? Yeah, who is that person just trying to find it? And what is that paperwork like? It's not a common thing. And when you get frustrated with it, who resolves it? Yes. You know, it's, um, <laughs> weirdly enough, I knew more about American regulations because, again, it's tough. So I was kind of prepared for that. It was the home regulations huh. that surprised me in the UK. But we got past those. They did delay us by a couple of months launching, so it was a little bit frustrating. And we had people ready to go out and sell, and we were waiting for the ability to move stuff from the factory into a warehouse and to customers, which was a little bit annoying. Oh, I bet, because there's all that investment tied up in what's just sitting there. You have a workforce ready to go, and it's, sorry guys, (laughs) waiting for someone to stamp a document. The biggest hurdle was we kind of resolved it by not doing it in a way. We was recruiting people. At the outset, we thought we'd recruit sales team and maybe a general manager. They were actually quite hard to find. People that were good at their job that wanted to take a risk and come and work for an entrepreneurial venture with no certain future. So they were actually quite hard to find. Oh, I bet. I would imagine the liquor world, the sales side of it, is very small. And people get their accounts and they're very good at them. How do you convince them to <laughs> leave a whole portfolio behind and just come and work for you? Yeah. One brand, one bottle. Yeah. Will it work? Will <laughs> I survive? What happens if it doesn't? You know, so it was all of that. That was a difficult process, actually. How did you find those people and how did you train them up on an untested product? What was that experience like? In a way, we didn't. We didn't find them. The original plan for myself was that I would be on the sidelines carrying on with my consultancy. And then we recruited some people, didn't really work out. And I stepped up to the plate and said, well, somebody's got to take this on. So suddenly I became commercially involved and involved in leading the business. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the biggest lesson is the easiest way to do something passionately that you believe in is to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that was... 
probably the biggest lesson for us in the early stages. And I guess that goes back to you were asking your sales team to take a risk on you. And then you ultimately had to jump in headfirst too. <laughs> you had to yeah. take a full time. You couldn't do it from the sidelines yourself. No, and at the end of the day, you are trying to be smarter and quicker than a lot of highly resourced companies. So the idea of delegating that to junior people is sometimes not advisable. Maybe you just need to lead yourself. No one's going to have that passion in a brand quite like the founder, the person who's actually invested in it. And you do need to walk through a few walls at the beginning. You you do need to take on some challenges. You do get knockbacks. You do get moments where you think, oh my God, I'm going to have to sell the house. So you do need that bravery, and it's difficult to hand that down to employees who don't have that passion. Well, kind of along the lines of passion, if you don't mind my asking, so many people use the term craft and small label, and in a lot of ways it seems to have lost its meaning. I'm always interested to find out, you really promote Brockman's as a craft gin. It's different. It's a flavor profile never tried before in gin. What does craft mean to you? I think craft means batch distilled and first and foremost, and ours is distilled in small batches in a traditional distillery in which mm-hmm. all that craft, manual craft still exists. I think equally, you know, there's craft going back with gin beyond just the distillation, which is the selection of the botanicals, the purchasing of those mm-hmm. and the quality standards that they need to reach. Mm-hmm. So all of that sits with what we do. So those two factors, the hand selection of ingredients Mm. and the individual batch distillation would define craft to me. I'm sure you didn't just go out and find the cheapest juniper and the (laughs) the lowest cost ingredients to go into your gin. How did you find just the right ingredients to make your flavors? We relied on people, you know, even having worked in that distillery, Mm. lived and breathed the flavors. I, I can't say I'm a purchasing expert, but in terms of the standards we set for the quality of the gin and the recipe that we wanted to achieve, we were no kind of restrictions on cost for us in terms of quality. It was just find the best and bring them to you and see how they all played together. Well, I'd like to discuss how you market your brand. I'm just kind of blown away by the amount of video that you've put out. I know a lot of Brands rely on social media and the internet to get their words out because they can't afford to do a big print run (laughs) in a newspaper. And it's questionable how effective that would even be to move a brand. How do you get the word out? And where did this idea to use high quality video production come from to really create the Brockman's brand? It's that kind of serendipity thing again. We uh, we met a guy who uh, loved our brand. Actually, interesting, the guy was completely teetotal. So all he saw was brand. He could nose it, and he wouldn't drink it, but he absolutely loved the brand idea. And he said, I love that brand idea so much that I'd like to create a video story around your brand and convert that video story into a website. And a nice guy, and we looked at each other and thought, this guy could be completely crazy, or (laughs) he could completely get it. And going back to my belief that if you are creating something innovative, then you should always respect what your brand's about what your brand story is and what your brand personality is. I thought the concept of this guy bringing alive our brand personality in a video form at launch on a website, which was rarely done in those days, was a fantastic idea. So we gambled. And what he produced was pretty close to what we thought the brand was all about. So we thought that was great in just bringing what Brotman's was all about alive in a kind of brand world sense. And then we had that story out there. The story had 
probably lost a bit of interest. So about a year and a half ago, we did an updated story and we did quite a few video clips across there. And we'd learned quite a bit about social media at that stage. So it was like a seven minute film we did. I think the first one I can't, I think it was about five. And so this was a seven minute film. We had a three minute version, but we also had little 30 second teasers. So we'd learned getting that viral message out there. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, if you Google us, you will see quite a lot of video material yeah. around us. I thought that was so interesting. And it's such a, yeah, I think if you look at that video, you really do just get what the message is you're trying to send. And I think it reflects that you had such a great idea about what your brand was from the concept of the gin all the way through to who your target audience was. Because you had that clarity of vision, it seems to me, you were able to produce a video that exactly captured that. It's yeah, I think that's so critical. If you just understand that, you've got that deep within you. I mean, people often say to me, you know, and I don't profess to be a great writer, but they say, when we ask you to write stuff about Brotmans, you write it in a split second. Mm. So that says, you know, you've got the kind of the kernel of what you're about inside you. So that's important. And yeah, that was a great creation of an expression of Brotman's. It really was. And the idea being right back to those focus groups I talked about earlier. Consumers told us quite openly that a lot of communication around gin is around daytime. And actually, these happy hour hotel cruising consumers said, well, actually, where we consume the atmosphere is about night. And we want that kind of why aren't there brands that give you that kind of night feel? So Brotman set out to be, you know, a gin. Our expression is a gin like no other. And it was, you know, we wanted to be as night to day, basically, yes. comparison. So that was our aim. And that's what that video expressed was this whole kind of night atmosphere with sensuality and luxury all combined. I think that nighttime expression, that sensuality and that luxury carries forward, not just in a video, which you have a lot of control over, but also in the bottle and the label and the black cap on top of it. I mean, your whole packaging, just the product on the shelf suggests, yes, this is a nighttime <laughs> cocktail, as opposed to a lot of gins, which are in clear bottles. It's a clear spirit. It's something that can be enjoyed in the afternoon. Brockman's, you just look at it and it's I'm going to open that up when the sun sets. The bottle just conveys it. It's silver lettering. It's nice red lettering on the label as well. I guess, did that all kind of come out of your original brainstorming too? I know a lot of people really struggle with how their packaging should look. And you've clearly gone with a custom bottle, custom label, not an inexpensive choice to go with. Did that all come from your original ideas as well as you were just conceiving the brand? Or did that come later on as you were developing it further? How did you make that decision to spend all that money on what is a very effective package, but also a very expensive one? Bring reality to that, we bought off-the-shelf bottles to start with. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. Which is not that different from what you're seeing. Oh, okay. Um, just we coated it black because of the night feel. And we kind of got lost in this personality of... Not in a historical sense, but in a modern sense of bluesy, jazzy, speakeasy feel. Mm -hmm. And that explains a lot of the kind of graphics. You know, it's got that kind of almost burlesque style to it. The bottle now, we took the opportunity. We grew substantially in Europe. So we could afford the minimum runs, which is often a challenge for an innovator in the spirits industry. We had sufficient runs to be able to have our own bottle. And that was always an aim of ours, to actually create our own bottle. The bottle we created is distinctly different from where we started, although in profile sense, probably very similar. And we've added a lot of embossed features. 
tactility we've got embossed you know as you hold the bottle you can there's a crosshatch emboss on the bottle so you feel the sensation of the mm-hmm. bottle and i've learned over the years that that consumers like that tactility they right. like to touch you know even if it's just simple dimples or because it gives quality but it also gives a good relationship with the bottle as well it makes you want to pick it up which is good yeah, as you're walking by on the on the aisle down the liquor store, it's oh, let's grab it. There's yeah. anybody you want to grab it? I wonder what that texture feels like. Yeah. So yeah. also, I think the, the, the biggest kind of in terms of the communication development, we have a very tight team. So I use one creative director that I've always worked with. In oh. fact, we worked together before Brockman's, so we know each other very well. So we know language. You know, when I say something that might be a strategic thing he can interpret that creatively and vice versa so we have a very good rapport on that Mm. and i think that i've seen it in other things discussed recently i think sailor jerry's i think they consistently have had the same creative team i think that's a good example of building up a brand personality by actually consistency consistently using the same creative resource and we've got that we've got the same team that works together and understands what the brand's all about so yeah so your creative team to you isn't just a consultant that you reach out to to help come up with a new label or something it, it's part of your team it's someone you communicate with regularly and not only do they take your direction but they understand you too. <laughs> they they understand the meaning of your words and not just the literal definition of what you're asking them to produce yeah and that's not easy to find but we have a, we have a very works. close-knit team and we work hard on that we don't go to large agencies with lots of account directors and account managers mm-hmm. partly because we can't afford it <laughs> and partly because we want to work closely with people with the skills and if you go through account directors and account managers as good as they are you're not getting direct to the creative resources mm-hmm. that you need yeah so that's such a great benefit of working with a small team you know because i imagine a lot of people think well, i want to go to the top i want to use who the big guys are using because they know how to move things but if you're just a small account at a large creative agency you're not going to get the attention that you probably need especially at the inception stage of your brand that if you use a small team of very creative people no there's lots of very good freelance people out Mm -hmm. there you know and historically that's been around for years but has grown you know if you're a great copywriter then you're out selling your skills as an independent business if you're a great designer you're probably doing the same so there's lots of those great skills to be found Mm -hmm. out in there so don't be afraid to take a chance yeah I guess just one more question about your bottles, though, because I do <laughs> like to nerd out a little bit on packaging. It's good to hear that your brand did decide to use an off-the-shelf bottle before moving to custom, because I, like I believe I said earlier, it's something a lot of people who are just launching really struggle with. Do I spend the $200,000 it's going to cost to make a mold and do a whole glass run, and then I have to sit on all those bottles while I wait to fill them and sell them? And it's a large financial investment. It's a large space investment, which no one has enough of. And it's just a time investment, and you don't know if you're really going to reap the rewards of that at the very beginning. Did all of that go into your original calculus? An off-the-shelf bottle was something you were able to manipulate and change and make your own, and it was also something that was cheap and easier to get it, and cheaper and easier to get access to and then did you always kind of know that you could make that transition to a custom bottle when the time came absolutely yeah that was we knew we could once we got Mm -hmm. sufficient volumes we could move it to a custom bottle i think we've been very surprised how well the custom bottle has come out i can't pretend that we had that you just knew it was going to happen great yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it does look terrific 
the designers and the glass company have done an amazing job with it. You know, we're very pleased. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of challenges, actually. The glass company weren't 100% on board with what we were trying to achieve for technical reasons. But we just said, well, let's give it a go. Because if we get there, that could be incredible. And actually, the net result is the glass company is really proud of what we've done because it's quite innovative yeah. within glass. And That's- recently, our trademark guys approached us and said you've got something quite unique there in terms of the facets of the bottle nobody's really done that before you should really be registering that so we started to register that to protect it so from a distance doesn't look incredible but when you get close to it you realize actually there's kind of a lot of things going on there that are quite different from what's been out there before so we're very proud of that that was good work so getting to this end result wasn't a grand master plan getting to a proprietary bottle was Clearly, I think the interesting thing is, or the thing I find with a lot of innovation is that people go over elaborate, go mm. too expensive with glass too soon. I think particularly with craft distilled products, actually consumers respect things that are labeled rather than painted. So ours is a traditional bottle with a front and back label and it's got a, an additional label on the front. But we find that I historically have found that consumers regard, you know, paper labels as being part of that craft distilled expression mm. because, you know, it's a traditional feel. So, you know, I do find and have observed quite a lot of innovation within drinks that, you know, have tried to do that craft delivery have gone to that direct printed bottle look that was particularly popular with following brands like Absolute and others, mm. you know, Grey yes. Goose. And I don't think within the craft world, that's necessarily the the way to go. Hmm. And it also raises the price to do those kind of things. So to be able to just use something like a traditional label is a little bit of an easier entry point too, and public responds well to it. Yeah, bottle costs can sometimes hold you back. Mm. I've certainly spoken to a few people who you do get, you know, you can get stuck with an over elaborate bottle that costs you a lot of money. And it's (laughs) if you get in that situation, it's difficult to then get out of it. Because, you know, you're extracting costs from the overall look. Right. It's, I mean, same with product. You know, I've seen people trying to extract cost out of their product. And yes. you, can get, you can end up in a sticky situation and sure. lose, you know, a lot of loyal consumers as a result. So what's it been like for you as you've moved into such a global brand? You started in the UK. You're now in several European countries. And you've crossed the Atlantic and are now in three, I believe, states here in the United States as of early 2015. What's it like managing that kind of a global distribution (laughs) from overseas? How did you find the right distributors? How do you trust that your brand is being represented well so far away from your immediate control? Gosh, yeah. Global brand, yeah. It's difficult to think of ourselves (laughs) as a global brand. I mean, we still feel very vulnerable, you know, very new, swimming around amongst some very big fish. It's not an expression we use internally. We have a team of five people in total managing the brand, so it doesn't feel like some corporation in the global brand sense. In terms of expansion internationally, we primarily have said we'll focus on a small number of markets. We will not overextend ourselves by going in too many markets where we can't support the brand or we can't support Mm. what we're trying to do. So it wasn't a get as big as you can as quickly as possible? No, and I've seen people do that, you know, could quite easily go and play that game of go and get 120 distributors in 120 different countries and probably initially get quite a lot of beneficial volume. But, 
you're not really building something if you're doing that. You'll end up probably in a trading situation and not really creating a consumer franchise. So we've said primarily, and it won't surprise you, that the main markets we look at are the US, the UK, and Spain. They are the three most developed gin markets in the world. And so that's in our minds always. We launched the brand in the UK in 2009. We went into Spain in 2010 went into a number of other European markets where we found distribution partners that we were quite happy with. And then we came into the US in 2014. We took our time coming into the US because I'd worked in global drinks companies. I knew how difficult the US was and further away, as you suggested, but also choosing the right distributor. Not saying it's easy anywhere else, but getting it wrong in the US can hold you back So we decided as a team to spend a year working out how we would come into the U.S. market and what partners we would work with. And that was more time than we probably spent on other markets, Mm -hmm. just because of the three-tier structure and because of a number of big players within the whole, you know, state distribution, wholesale environment. We thought we we need to be careful who we decide Mm -hmm. to go with. So we took our time. I think what you said is such a good point, too. You don't want to just get into a bunch of markets. You want to be well-received in those markets, and you really want to be able to spend the time with them and make sure that the customers who place that first case order come back and place a second case order, too. (laughs) You can jump to volume very quickly, but you want repeat business as well. It doesn't help you to make 120 sales in 120 countries once, and then no one ever hears from your salesman again, no one ever hears from you again, so they don't purchase from you again, so... You can't forget that this is a recurring sales business, not a one-shot Absolutely. It's about good partnerships with Mm -hmm. the right people, with the right mentality. When I've been in the U.S. now for a week, I've been doing a lot of training with customers, talking about the brand, the product, how we make it. And it's all about that. And, you know, and people are very open to that. So this is working with independent bars Mm -hmm. and talking to their bar staff, their mixology teams and explaining you know where Brockman's comes from where it sits within the broader spirits and gin category so just wrapping up i'm always interested to know if you could go back to 2009 right as you were preparing to launch and tell yourself then one thing that you've learned now what would that thing be you know what would you go back in time and tell yourself okay it's going to take you a couple years to learn this but it's going to make a lot easier if i reveal it to you now what do you wish you had known then that you know now I think basically run it yourself. You're the only one that's going to have the passion for anything innovative and communicate that right the way through. It's challenging enough getting a business off the ground. In a very developed market, it's even more challenging. So be prepared to get roll your sleeves up and do it yourself. I think the one mistake I think we did make was right at the beginning where we did recruit group people and expect to just then delegate that passion down. You can't. You can't do that. No. Hmm. Great point. Being on the production side, and you've been on it for quite some time now, so maybe this question doesn't really work as well given your long experience on the production side of spirits, but has owning your own liquor brand changed the way that you go out to bars and restaurants and liquor stores? Do you get to go out and relax when you go to them, or are you always kind of looking behind the bar to see, oh, is Brockman's back there? Why do they have this on the drinks menu and not mine? 
Yeah, I drive my wife nuts. You know, <laughs> it's just a, I can't walk into a bar without checking out the gantry and what kind of bar this is and looking mm. at their drinks menu. And she recognizes that that's probably a half an hour profiling exercise that I have to do okay. before I relax. You can't stop. No, you can't stop. You know, I adore it. I love talking to consumers. We've been mm. doing lots of gin shows in the UK with what called the gin festivals gives us the opportunity to talk to a lot of consumers and I you know I'd like to get that feedback and find out you know where people are and mm-hmm. what they're thinking I think is you've got to be constantly open to that so yeah you don't let go really <laughs> but it goes back to that passion that you're talking about you have it for your brand so yeah and you don't want to turn it off you want to talk to people about why why am I not in this bar but it's, you know I, I mean I've worked in corporations in this industry and you know, owning your own brand, there's just absolutely nothing like it. You know, it's it's engaging, it's exciting, and you have your moments where things don't go quite right. But, you know, totally, I was in Boston yesterday, mm. and a particular mixology account that we struggled to get into was recognized within the Boston circles as a very important account. And you know, I went to talk to them, and they went, yeah, we'll, we'll give it a go. And it, the whole team was just so pleased, and it's just that excitement. It's just marvelous. Yeah. What's one cocktail or cocktail recipe that you could share with our listeners? You know, they go to a store, they buy a bottle of Brockman's, they bring it home. How should they enjoy it? How should they experience it? What's one recipe you can share? Well, actually, I was talking to somebody last night, and I said, actually, the one thing I have learned is how to make a great gin and tonic. I think I started out with there are five points. Let's see how it goes, but I think there's more than that. So it's more than just gin time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and particularly disappointing in the on-premise in the states. Actually, I'm quite surprised. Actually, one thing that did surprise me how much you know that you get this glass, this tall highball glass. You get pour ice, mm-hmm. and you get a chunk of lime, and you get a gun tonic sprayed in it. Sure. Which doesn't taste very good. Lots of high fructose corn syrup in there. By the time it's got to you, it's probably got no effervescence left in it. So, <laughs> so, so yes. help us out. How what's the right way to make one then? A wide mouth glass. So look at what oh. the Spanish are doing. They use you know these these coppers as they call them, which are almost like burgundy glasses. So because gin has complexity, so you want to release those flavors within any gin, including Brotman's. So you want you know as wide as possible, so that kind of you can mix it around the glass and it allows all the different flavors that within the botanicals that release themselves at different mm-hmm. times. So that number one, the glass. Number two, with that glass, use large ice cubes. The majority of gin and tonics that are served in UK bars and US bars, by the time you've got to your first sip, the ice has actually melted by about 20 or 30%. Mm-hmm. So yes. you've already watered down your drink. Again, if you use large ice cubes, they gather together and they stay there colder, longer. That's number two. Number three is great tonic. So don't use gun tonic. (laughs) If you can't get bottled tonic in a bar or you can get it in your store, there are some good tonics, very good tonics out there. There have been quite a few launched recently, but some of the older style ones are also as good. So decent tonic and chill it. Chill your tonic. Why chill your tonic? Because it retains the effervescence longer if it's cold. So it stays more effervescent longer. So by the time you're two or three minutes into your drink, you don't want it to be flat. You want it to stay effervescent. Pour that tonic gently into your glass. Do not splash it. Again, you're losing effervescence. So the Spanish pour it down a twisty spoon, a twisty bar spoon. Oh, yes. Quite nice, quite theatrical. <laughs> or you can just do it over the back of a spoon. 
Okay. Or just bring the tonic bottle closer to the glass if you haven't got any of the above. And then look at your garnish. I personally like a twist or the either lime or we really like pink grapefruit peel because oh, it really? has a really nice sweetness, bitterness balance. So just the zest of pink grapefruit. Okay. Not a chunk of it, just the zest Not itself. a chunk. A slice is okay, but personally I like I just like the zest. It just draws out all the botanicals and, and also the flavors within the tonic really well. So they would be my suggestions. The drink I have at home is I make, I have gin and tonic, just as I've described, but also gin with traditional lemonade, so not a sweet lemonade, mm. just a dry, can be carbonated or not, and then lots of ice, big ice, and just drizzle that with a bit of cassis. And that's just a nice, easy, refreshing drink. Well, now I'm really thirsty, Bob, so <laughs> I'm going to have to end this interview because i got to go and try one of these. All Thank right. you so much for joining me today, and thanks for sharing Brockman's with our listeners. Where can people get more information? What, do you have a website? What is the website? Yeah, Where go to it? our website. We're on www.brockmansgin, all one word, .com. So you'll find out more information. They'll give you all the links to our blogs and our Twitter feeds and all the, the usual suspects. Fantastic. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Zach.